We've had such an unpleasant relationship with medicine throughout history. Women's bodies have been devalued, demeaned, whatever the word is. And it's universal. It transcends cultures. Facts do not have opinions. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything, and I'm here each week to dive deeper into how we can find happiness and health inside and out through self-love, body positivity, and discovering new ways to be our best selves. Before we get started, a reminder, this podcast is for general educational purposes and is not intended to diagnose, advise, or treat any physical or mental illness. And we always recommend that you see a licensed health professional accordingly. In fact, today we're going to be talking all about seeing medical health professionals. And we have Susan Salinger here who wrote the book Sidelined, How Women Manage and Mismanage Their Health. And one of the things that, Susan, you're such an advocate for is for women specifically to seek out medical health professionals in a way that is conducive and beneficial. So we'll talk more about that. I know that I myself, a lot of listeners have avoidance tendencies sometimes <laughs> and that we think that Dr. Google is our best friend. And right. so I think a lot of the work that you do in educating and empowering women will be really helpful. So listeners, if you're not familiar with Susan's work, she's the author and researcher behind Sidelined, as I said, which examines the many ways in which some women manage and sometimes mismanage their health care. Susan explores how women, typically the medical gatekeepers for their families, tend to be extremely conscientious about taking care of themselves, yet at the same time, inadvertently undermine their own care. Born and raised in Los Angeles, Susan is a graduate from UCLA. We are both English majors, by the way, <laughs> doing very different things. And after graduation, worked alongside her husband, Fred, for 25 years at their production companies, Ellinger Films, which produced corporate trading and development, distributed worldwide. And today, at age 80, Susan lives in Northern California. So, Susan, welcome. You're thriving. You've got your own, like, second, third, fourth career going here. Can you tell us how this came to be passion for you? Well, I, when I retired, my husband and I sold our business many years ago and I retired for, you know, three, four seconds. That didn't work for me at all. So I went back to school and took some anthropology classes. And in those classes, I learned all kinds of information about women in medicine that I didn't know and that is not available to the general public. Academics write for each other, and I didn't quite realize that. So I thought to myself, I think I better, I want to write a book. I want to share what I've learned with women, and I want to do some more research to find out even more stuff. And so that's really how it came about. I was surprised to learn just how many things I didn't know that really surprised me. I was just talking to my mother-in-law Mother's Day, who I know it's such a weird thing, but we went to college together. <laughs> she went at the same time as my husband, and we actually had classes together. And so, um, so I have a great relationship with her. And anyway, so we were talking about 
our experience and different classes we took that we loved or didn't take. And she was a very conscientious student. I was not, you know, all that. And I said, you know, I remember taking an anthropology class and loving it. Like it was required from, I have a cultural criticism concentration in English and I have a minor in women's studies and anthropology was required for both. So my English major is specific to writing and learning about cultural criticism, which is not far from what I do today. But it's just fascinating that anthropology was a click for you because I remember saying how much I loved it and then being like, and then what am I going to do for a career? That's exactly what happened to me. I went back with the intention of maybe getting a doctorate. I didn't know. And then I thought, what am I going to do with it? You know, I didn't want to teach. And uh, so I'm that I had exactly the same experience. Yeah. So maybe listeners, if you're looking for something to do and uh, be inspired and fill your time in a productive way, go right. audit a class at the college. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. Susan loved it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I will say, I know that oftentimes what inspires us are personal experiences that we've had, right? So if you took anthropology and what really stood out to you was things that you didn't know about medicine, women in medicine, was it relating to some personal experiences that you've had? Or what was kind of the thing that really caught your attention about picking that as the passion as you moved forward? Well, actually, it did come from a personal experience. That's an interesting question. Many years ago, I mean, 30, 40, whatever years ago, I agreed to have some exploratory surgery that I was sure I didn't need. I had been on medication for osteoporosis and the doctor said, hey, look, you know, I've got this new medication. It's better for osteoporosis. Let's try it. And so I said, sure, no, no problem. So I tried it. I began to try it and i started some vaginal bleeding. And so at that point I said, hey, we better go back on the original medication. This obviously I'm having a side effect. And it was not obvious to him at all. And he did a bunch of tests. And he said, I really needed exploratory surgery. I knew he was looking for ovarian cancer because it was, that's what one of the major symptoms is. And so I, at that point, of course, I got scared, although I pushed back a little, but he insisted. And, you know, I thought, well, you know, he's a professional. So I, and I agreed to have the surgery. In fact, I insisted it be done sooner rather than later. And of course, there was nothing there. And I went back on the old medication and everything was fine. But I thought to myself, why did I agree to this? I mean, I had options. I could have gotten a second opinion. I could have waited a couple of weeks. I wasn't going to keel over in a few days. I mean, you know, it was fine. And on the other hand, if he'd been right, he would have saved my life. So he was scared. I was a young mother with young kids. So that, and okay, so I was fine. And then I kind of forgot about it. Life goes on. I was working. I had the kids. And then when I took these anthropology classes, for one of them, I did a project on women who had undergone hysterectomies, which actually I hadn't. But I got interested in the subject. And many of them had agreed to the surgery, even though they weren't sure they needed it. In fact, many, a few of them said that they were sure their symptoms were due to, you know, menopausal or premenopausal. But they agreed to it anyway. So that, of course, acted as a trigger to my memory. And I thought to myself, how do women, generally speaking, how do we make our medical decisions? Why are we doing this to ourselves? What's this about? And that was kind of the catalyst for the book. Yeah, that's really interesting. 
I know you talk to a lot of different women via interviews and focus groups. I'm curious, do you find that in doing that, women got better care from a male doctor or a female doctor? So for example, we've had Mary Claire Haver, who is a female doctor who personally has gone through menopause and has become kind of an expert in the field because there aren't very many doctors who fully understand, for example, that the different kinds of symptoms that might be coming from that. It's not like it's being taught in school. And if you don't have the lived experience, then it's difficult for someone to do proper hair, right? So what I'm curious what you found in all these interviews and focus groups. I, actually, the women I interviewed, and I interviewed maybe, I don't know, 50 women, 60, whatever. And the gender of their particular doctor was mixed. I personally did not find, I did not do that research, nor did I find anything that jumped out at me. But what I can tell you is that at the time I did the research, and I did start to research whether gender made a difference in, in caregivers. And at the time I did the research, the, it was mixed. Now the newer research seems to feel that women do better with a woman doctor. And I'm really not clear on the reasons. My doctors are both men and women. And I think that, which is fine for me anyway, too. But it does seem to be, as I said, the latest research is if you have a choice, you probably, if you're a woman, you might prefer a woman doctor. You know, that's interesting. I I think in my personal experience, it's really about finding someone who's compassionate or empathetic. Yes. Like you could have someone who is your same gender yet doesn't have compassion or isn't interested in exploring beyond just surface level things. Or you could have someone who is of the opposite gender yet is interested in finding solutions and has compassion for your problems. And wants to explore those in a way that's beneficial to you. So I I wonder kind of where that spectrum and research is as well, just because I think generally people say that women are more empathetic. So maybe that's why it's not necessarily like a female to female relationship, but maybe female medical professionals have in general more interest in, you know, that side of the medical practice, which not everyone does. I think that's true, but it's interesting that what you just said. I have a cardiologist that's a male, and he is just wonderful at listening to me. He spends, I go maybe once or twice a year, and he spends maybe an hour, an hour. Did you hear that? (laughs) Really, listening to me, asking me how I am, giving me a thorough checkup. I mean, he's fabulous. And I also have Another doctor that I see once a year, and she couldn't care less. I mean, how are you? Fine. Great. We moved on, you know. (laughs) So you're absolutely right. It depends on the particular doctor. I think that's much more important than gender. You talked about men and women speaking to doctors different. Can you talk more about what you mean by that? And also, you mentioned like, would I have or should I have? gotten a second opinion right like do we think that women are less likely to advocate for themselves and feel empowered in an environment where we don't have control 
and we just shrink a little bit? Like, what do you think the difference is? Well, those are, well, those are a bunch of huge questions. Let me pick it apart a little bit. First of all, men and women do describe their symptoms differently to doctors from each other, I mean. When men go to the doctor, for example, they're much more objective. Women describe, our, we describe our feelings. We tell the doctor the whole story. And I think that there's a huge difference between the two conversation styles. And I'm as guilty as anybody. I tell how I'm feeling, not only physically, but it's depressing. I'm exhausted. I can't do this. I can't do that. And sometimes my physical symptoms can get sort of subsumed by my emotional ones. And I think that can lead the doctor to a psychological diagnosis rather than an organic one. So I think that it's, that's something that women need to be aware of. Now, second opinions, that's a big subject. And women hesitate to get second opinions. You know, culturally, we've been taught to play nice. We've been taught not to, nice not to be rude. And we don't want to hurt the doctor's feelings. After all, they're the professionals. So we really don't do, and I was, as I told you earlier, I was very guilty of that. So I think the first thing we all need to know is that we really need to get a second opinion. But I didn't understand this, but there's about, as I said, 20 to 30,000, 40,000 diseases out there. And many of them share the same symptoms. So if you go to the doctor and you say, I'm tired, I have no appetite, I have, you know, I have no energy, those symptoms fit such a variety of diseases that it's really a guess. And it's a personal, a diagnosis is a personal interpretation by your particular doctor. And, you know, we all see what we expect to see. And so the same symptoms can seem like stress to a psychologist joint pain to a rheumatologist, stomach pain to a gastroenterologist. So that's why a second opinion is so critical. Because you want to be sure that you're really getting the best or the most accurate diagnosis that you can. Nobody, including your doctor, wants to be treated for a disease they don't really have. So second opinions, I think, are very critical. And it, this leads me to say that in the back of my book, there's a resource section which is really helpful. I've done all your research for you. And it will tell you how to get second opinions, how to research your doctor. It will give you questions. To, the book gives you questions to ask so that you're sure your diagnosis is accurate. And one of the basic questions to ask when you get a diagnosis is what else could this possibly be? So that way you have two diseases or three diseases that you can go home and research and see if you think any of them fit the particular symptoms you have. I think it's such a great point about the same symptoms to a psychologist would be stress, anxiety, where a gastroenterologist and a rheumatologist would be treating those specific symptoms. And also the idea that when talking to a doctor, if you're talking about your stress, your depression, your lack of sleep, and they're like, oh, okay, well, you need to go on an antidepressant, we also need to talk to a medical professional about treating the symptoms that we're experiencing. I've done other shows with people who we've talked about how anti-anxiety medication was a game changer for their health. And at the same time, in the meantime, those symptoms still exist and we all deserve 
to live our best life, pain-free, symptom-free, whatever. And maybe if we can deal with underlying stress, which is causing lack of sleep, which is causing, you know, yada, or if it is in fact stress that's causing gastro issues, that doesn't mean that we just deal with the gastro issues. You know, like we still have to focus on the symptoms and the idea that if we're bringing emotions to it, doctors are less likely to address specific symptoms is is interesting. I think the other concept that came up for me while you were talking is the idea that by and large, it's been my personal experience with medical professionals and my husband's experience with professionals that weight seems to come up a lot more for women as well, that doctors, especially with women, are quick to say, all of the things that you're describing are related to weight. You need to lose weight. And then dot, dot, dot. Again, not treating the symptoms. And there have been incredible, sad numbers, research on people who are overweight who did not get proper treatment and diagnosis because a doctor assumed or whatever it was about their weight. And ultimately, they had a cancer that was missed because a doctor was, you know, saying everything was related to their weight. Whereas, you know, when my husband goes in, his weight is viewed differently, even if he is also in an obese category, right? Like the way that he talks about what he might be experiencing and how he receives hair can often be different. Did that come up for some of the women that you were interviewing? They did not mention that. They did mention being treated for depression. But, and I think that there's two things I want to say. Number one, it's tricky for the doctor in the sense that women do suffer from depression and anxiety more than men do. So sometimes, and of course, as you said, stress can cause or anxiety can cause physical symptoms. But it isn't necessarily that the doctor's blowing you off because there is some data b- behind that diagnosis. But when you get a diagnosis like that, And whether it's true or not is only something that that you can decide. And I think that's really hard as a patient to do because, of course, you're depressed. You're feeling like crap or you wouldn't be at the doctor in the first place. But, you know, so it's a hard call for everybody. But that's when you have to ask that question, what else could it possibly be? That gives you something to hang your head on. So when you go to Dr. Google, who I would be hesitant to trust, I would trust all of the mostly all of the resources in my book. I say mostly because at this point, you know, maybe websites change. I don't know. They were accurate when I printed them, so to speak. But I think you have to be careful when you do go to Google. But by the same token, there's also some really good information out there, obviously. But if you're not sure that it's depression and if you think that you have symptoms that also need to be treated, or if you take the antidepressant and you find that you're maybe less depressed, but your stomach still hurts, that's when I would go do my own research, get second opinions, et cetera. I wouldn't just say, oh, well, I'm hopeless. I can't be treated. And that I think that happens a lot. This podcast is sponsored by Just Thrive. Use code WHOLEVIEW for 15% off at justthrivehealth.com. 
And if you missed episode 54 with the founder, I highly recommend not just to nerd out on gut health science, but also we discuss heavy metals and chocolate and how probiotics have been shown in science to bind to heavy metals and provide health protection. Just Thrive in particular has an award-winning, scientifically-backed, unique breakthrough. It is the only product on the market with numerous peer-reviewed studies and clinical trials which have showed Just Thrive probiotic reduce leaky gut and inflammation because the soil-based formula is groundbreaking in its effectiveness, guaranteed to arrive 100% alive in your gut, and has a thousand times better survivability than leading probiotics. It's also the only retail available probiotic containing a proprietary super strain that produces antioxidants at the site of peak absorption for unmatched digestive, immune, and total body health support. I take this probiotic every day and recommend it to all my skincare clients because your gut health impacts literally everything, your well-being, your mood, your digestion, and a healthy gut is truly the gateway to feeling your best. Plus, it's vegan-friendly, gluten-free, dairy-free, histamine-free, and non-GMO. To try it, get 15% off when you go to justthrivehealth.com and use code WHOLEVIEW. That includes bundles and subscriptions, so definitely double up on your savings at justthrivehealth.com slash discount slash WHOLEVIEW with code WHOLEVIEW. Honestly and sincerely, this is the only probiotic that I've ever felt makes a difference, and I hope you love it too. Yeah, I think also it's hard. My, you know, my personal experience is you never want to insult someone, right? Mm -hmm. And if their profession is a medical doctor and one asks for or suggests that they want or need a second opinion, it might feel like you are insulting your doctor. And sometimes whether that's coming from a place of care and compassion for your doctor or whether it's coming from a place of fear that you'll be ostracized the next time you come in if you went and got a second opinion. I think we need to remember that we ourselves are as deserving of the quality of care that we want to give to somebody else if we want them, you know, to have compassion and not have their feelings hurt you know, we deserve care as well. And there's a way to respectfully have that conversation. I recently had this conversation with a medical professional regarding a child of mine. And we were sure that they had specifically thyroid issues. And we, you know, we had to get a referral for a pediatric thyroid doctor, which took like five months took forever. Oh, and then that pediatric doctor was very quick and very dismissive and not compassionate. And I was like, I did not wait five months for this person to just like be so dismissive. And because it was a specialist that I wouldn't have to see again, I didn't even really talk to them about it. Right. I just went right. back to, you know, my main provider and said, that wasn't a good fit and it took five months to get in. Can you help me find somebody else that, you know, could potentially be helpful? And they got us in with a different doctor within two weeks. And that yeah. doctor was night and day in terms of the level of 
like you said, asking detailed questions, looking at different aspects of their health beyond just like the surface level test results. And we found the problem was it wasn't a thyroid, but that doctor took the time to find the problem was that it ended up being a very significant problem. And if I had not gone and gotten a second opinion for this child, it would have only compounded over time how badly this problem was affecting their health. And so I just, I hope that story kind of inspires people that sometimes it's not even about like the person itself and whether they're dismissive or compassionate. It might be that the area of expertise isn't there. So in this case, the particular, you know, thyroid endocrine doctor that we were seeing was like, nope, there's not a thyroid or an endocrine problem, which was not incorrect. But they didn't use the information that they had, the tests, right, to dig in a little bit deeper to be able to say, but this is a problem. Let's talk about this and try right. to find the problem. So I think sometimes it's also just about finding someone who has the expertise or the experience that might be a better fit for what someone's problem might be. Does that make sense? Did that come it, up in, in yes, your research? Yes, and, well, and you handled it so beautifully. I mean, truly. And I think another way to look at second opinions is, how do I say this? Many of the women I talked with, which is what you just said too, view it as a challenge or you, as you said, a, a, an insult. I don't think of it that way now that I've done the research I did originally, I, you know. But really what it is, you want to confirm your doctor's opinion. You're not challenging it. And you're not, I'm not suggesting you go for a second opinion if he tells you to take two aspirin. You know, of course not. But if it's serious, if I had a second opinion, I would not have had surgery. If some of the women I interviewed had a second opinion, they would have not have had the hysterectomy. So I think, first of all, that's important to, re to recognize that it isn't necessarily a challenge. If your doctor interprets that interprets it that way, it may be time to get a different doctor. The other thing that I also realize, and you know, I've been on many of these podcasts, and I mean, many have have had doctors who have interviewed me, and every one of them has said they welcome second opinions. Apparently, one in three doctors can expect to be sued at least once during their career. So, not only do they like a second opinion because they want to make sure they're doing prescribing the right treatment, but it acts as backup in case of a lawsuit. So I'm, I would be surprised if a doctor really hesitated to help you get a second opinion. The other problem is, and I think that all second opinion should be discussed with your primary physician, but you also want somebody with a different point of view. I mean, as I think I even say in the book, if your doctor was trained at UCLA, you want your second opinion, you want him to, or her trained from New York. I mean, you want to mix it up. Going to somebody in the same office is not necessarily helpful. So you have to be careful about that. And I found that the best doctors collaborate with other people, either right. in their office or exactly. outside of their office, and are willing to say, you know what, this is not something I've experienced before. I want to talk to my colleague who has. Like, if you hear those kinds of things from your doctor, it's reassuring to me to know that they're doing everything that they can in exactly. my best interest versus protecting their own ego. And if that's yeah. what we're doing, then that's not, like you said, really the doctor that I want to see. Right. 
I think a lot of my listeners, well, actually, I know a lot of my listeners, which are all mostly women. We always joke that there's like eight male listeners. We have more than that. And kudos to all of the masculine identifying listeners who often (laughs) tune in for these topics so that they can be their best selves for the women in their lives. But I know for so many of my women listeners that they are proactive when it comes to their health. I mean, they're listening to the show. If they're listening to the show, they're obviously focusing on their health. Right. right? And so they're working at something already so diligently and having it be a part of their life. Why do you think that they would have trouble getting that most effective care? And why would women some of the time do themselves such a disservice by just kind of accepting that trouble if you, I think with the most effective of, care? Take a couple of reasons. Number one, we're so good at putting ourselves last, putting our health care last. Women, women just, they, they were, some researchers gave women a, a list of five things you know, to prioritize. What would they take care of first? And first, they take care of their children. And secondly, their pets. I loved that piece of it. Third, they take care of elderly parents. Fourth, their significant others. And last was themselves. And that translates into we hesitate to go to the doctor. We're busy. We have projects at work. We have lunches to make, whatever. We have children to take care of. And so we put ourselves last. And I think that by the time we get there, it's so difficult to then say, well, now I need another opinion. I'm going to have to go and get to a second doctor, maybe a third. I don't know. So I think that's part of it. Secondly, I think our history is my favorite chapter in the book, but we've had such an unpleasant relationship with medicine throughout history. Women's bodies have been devalued, demeaned, whatever the word is. And it's universal. It transcends cultures. The Chinese called daughters maggots in the rice. The Dutch considered a house full of daughters was like a cellar full of sour beer. I mean, nobody loves us. It's just amazing. And I think that has been true throughout history in one form or another. And I think that many of us have internalized that and accepted the fact that we are hysterical. Remember hysteria during the Victorian age? I was just thinking about that. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you something interesting. Let me just give you a sidebar for a minute. Researchers did a study where they had a group of doctors and they gave them two scenarios about two patients. Everything in the scenarios was identical. I mean, they had the same cardiac symptoms. They had the same risk factors for cardiac disease. Everything was simple. One of the scenarios did not mention stress. And of course, the men and women got the same treatment prescription for a cardiac workup. As soon as stress was mentioned, the men and women received, I think the women, only 15% of the women received a prescription for a cardiac workup. So as soon as stress was mentioned, hysteria came right back into our, what if I, into our world and everybody, and they, and the symptoms were identical except for that one word. So I think that hysteria is still with us. And I think that we have to be careful about that. Yeah, but anyway, I do think that's why one of the reasons that we do ourselves a disservice. The other thing I found, and this really surprised me, is the amount of shame that women feel about being ill, and that that I was shocked. 
And that again translates. So many of the, let me put it this way. So many of the women blamed their illness on stress. They felt that they were overstressed and they couldn't manage their lives. And that's why they got sick. In fact, they felt that their illness was actually a public acknowledgement of their inability to take care of themselves and their families. And so they hesitated to go to the doctor. They were embarrassed. And I can I, I feel, I don't personally feel that way when I'm sick, but I, can, I certainly can understand it. And I wouldn't want to make the appointment either. So when a doctor says, well, yes, you are stressed and gives you an antidepressant, that feeds right into the shame that you're already feeling in the first place. So it's kind of a double whammy. Did that kind of answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it it brought up, you know, additional just, you know, passions and concerns of mine. So when you were talking about the idea that there's this implicit bias, right? This idea mm-hmm. of implied hysteria in women, uh-huh. whether it's being thought consciously, unconsciously, this implicit bias that comes also refers to you know, like I was mentioning, fat phobia from doctors. Right. And it's been shown by research. I know there was a study through Harvard back in the late 2000. I think it was like 2018. I'll put a link in the show notes for listeners that showed that implicit bias creates discrimination and causes harm specifically to Black women more than any other people yes. in the medical profession. And that oftentimes their symptoms are believed to be exaggerated or not believed. We see more harm come to them from birth, for example, right? Because there, there is, even if we remove all the other factors, like where they might be giving birth or the, you know, quality of care and all these kinds of things, there's still higher harm factor. And that implicit bias is important for all of us to be aware of when we're seeking care, right? Like we, if we're not aware that our doctor might be biased and thinking that we're hysterical about our cardiac symptoms or that, you know, they're not giving us the proper care because we're a woman of color, then it's not going to, well, not we, obviously I'm not a woman of color, but I mean, as part of a community, if we're not part of awareness with that implicit bias, then how can we possibly advocate for ourselves around it? Like we just, the education is so important for people to bring let, that. Let me tell you a story about that because just a personal story, but it's true as far as ageism is concerned as well. When my mom was about 75, she just went in for some outpatient knee surgery. It wasn't even a knee replacement. I forgot what it was, but but there's no big deal. So she was fine. My mother did not have a senile bone in her body. She was still wearing high heels. I mean, she was amazing. Anyway, so they gave her some pain medication and she came home. And within about 48 hours, maybe even 24, she could barely remember her name. She didn't know who was the president, you know, all of those things. It was like instant senility. So, of course, we rushed her back to the doctor. And both my dad and I said, you know, what's going on here? And the doctor actually, and he was a family doctor. He's been our doctor for years. And he pulled me aside and he said, Sue, you have to let your parents age graciously. You're making them feel bad and they're getting older. And I said, but Steve, that can't be. You don't, I mean, you may be right, but you know, you don't get senile overnight. You don't go in one day sharp as a tack and the next day you can't even spell your name. I mean, really? And he was absolutely adamant. 
And so we just went home and threw out the pills and she recovered. She was allergic to something and the medication. But if we hadn't been so aware and if we hadn't thrown out the pills, I mean, gosh knows, God knows what would have happened. It would have been a downhill slope. So like you said, you really have to be aware. And if it doesn't feel right, then it probably isn't. That's really, go with your gut. I knew that damn surgery of mine didn't feel right, and I never should have had it. I mean, there was, again, no big deal. I was lucky. But think about the risks. I mean, I went into the hospital. Hospitals are notorious for germs. I was given a general anesthetic. You know, I mean, it's risky. I was an idiot, truly. (laughs) You are not. Right. I think it's a story that we can all tell. I've heard it countless times with birth stories of women feeling like they weren't educated about their own rights or options and being talked into, you know, things that they really weren't comfortable with. I know for myself, you know, I had a birth story that, you know, I wish I could go back in time and change, even though my children are here. They're happy. They're healthy. I'm okay. It's all, we're all going to move right. forward right. from it. That doesn't mean that I don't want to educate people behind me to not make the same mistake. So don't, <laughs> I say this all the time. I'm like, Susan, you're my friend now. You can't talk to me like that. She's not an idiot. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. I appreciate it. I'm supposed to talk like her mom. No, I know we're, you're right. we're sharing a lot of our own stories. I'm curious if you can tell us more about some of the women that you interviewed and the focus groups that you did, like what kind of people were they? I interviewed, it was interesting actually, I interviewed all women, obviously, because it's a book on women. I did not do any research on men. I wasn't interested in the comparison as much as I was interested in how women make decisions. So I stuck with women only. And I picked women with all different diseases. I didn't just want the same illness because I was interested in their behavior and their perception of themselves rather than the particular illness that they suffered from. And what was so fascinating about the focus groups, and I did that just to get some geographical diversity, was that none of the women, and this shocked me, none of the women had ever talked with anybody other than their doctor about their illness. They were so delighted to be in the focus group that actually it took over the focus group because they were were exchanging stories. They were all so glad and so relieved to talk to other women who had similar issues, again, regardless of the particular disease. And I thought that's where the shame came in, because they, they were all basically ashamed of being sick. They felt they had no business being sick. It interfered with their abilities and even desires to take care of their family because they didn't feel good. So I really learned a lot, particularly well from all of the women at the focus group, that was a question that I hadn't asked the women I interviewed. I never said, well, who do you talk to? Who's your support? It didn't occur to me that they didn't have any. So that was really a major life lesson for me. This podcast is sponsored by Care Of, the collagen brand I can finally point you to that's tested for safety and I got you 50% off. For years, I felt the efficacy of collagen on my health, but not all brands are what they seem. I am always skeptical of supplement brands because of what I know about the lack of regulation in the industry. And I was so excited to find Care Of committed to quality and sustainability. 
And best of all, their products are tested three times throughout their supply chain in the United States. This ensures products meet exact specifications and that they're safe. Health is deeply human and it has to be personal. So Care Of is there to help you find what works best for you. They're taking care of you. Get it? I couldn't help myself there. But seriously, Care Of thoughtfully curates products, not tons and tons of things you don't really need or want. All formulated with care and in plant-based compostable film to help limit the impact on the environment without compromising on the quality and safety of their products. They create products that are as effective for your body as possible, based on a foundation of scientific research when using forms of each nutrient that are easiest for the body to digest and absorb. And what makes them especially unique is their short but in-depth quiz about your lifestyle and health goals. I am so impressed that the personalized Dr. Back recommendation came back focused on brain health for me, which is exactly what I wanted and need, and not a bunch of stuff I don't. I am currently taking their Focus Blend with methylated B12, as well as their collagen and my morning smoothies. Y'all, the passion fruit collagen is everything. Can you just put it in a smoothie with bananas and spinach and tell me how much you love it? Because hopefully it's as much as I do. I love that with that duo, I am getting a brain boost without caffeine and I'm getting nourished throughout the day. For 50% off your first care of order, go to takecareof.com and enter code WHOLEVIEW50. That's T-A-K-E-C-A-R-E-O-F.com with code WHOLEVIEW50 for half off. I can see how powerful that would be. I am a foster parent and am in support groups for people who are going through similar situations. And it's, it was life-changing for me in terms of my ability to be a good parent, regardless foster or not. Like it's just finding people who are interested in, you know, positive parenting techniques and different kinds of things. And I know, I think like when we're, when we have young kids, we're quick to find, like, I know for me, I joined groups so that my kids could play. And those served such a purpose in a support group of moms also going through the same thing. And as we get older, it's so hard to make new adult friends, right? Yeah. And so maybe the ones that you have don't have the particular lived experience that you have, but there are absolutely so many support groups and online communities, especially I attend both virtual and in-person support groups because I find that I get different kinds of benefits each. But I love the idea of, you know, one of your biggest takeaways being that people didn't have the support or the community, right? Like, yes, we're talking a lot about community care in so far as like lifting one another up or helping you're helping people find resources towards these different things and stuff like that. I think we need to right. be aware that if we're dependent on one single person, our doctor, with you know everything that we need, it's not going to encompass everything that we need. That person can only give us what their expertise or their knowledge allows. Yeah. And like you said, most doctors want you to have more than that. They want you to yeah. have your best care, which might be not just a second opinion but also 
you know, other people going through what you're going through, maybe they can tell you about some new product that they found that's going to help with symptoms or a medication that, you know, you can talk to your doctor about or, you know what I mean? Different kinds of things that might be helpful. Yeah. I'm curious what for you is the difference between online support group and meeting in person? You said that you get different things from them both. How does that work? I'm curious. Well, I think with in-person support groups, I've been able to develop a more deep relationship because it's like the same couple of people that go right. each week. And so yes. I know them and their circumstances really yeah. well, and we've kind of forged a relationship that way. Okay. But their circumstances are different than mine. So they have a younger kid, one of them. I have a teenager. Another one has what's called kinship care. So they're related to the mm -hmm. child in their care, which legally is different. So when we talk about okay. things like what resources do I have access to, it's very different than someone who has kinship care. And the only reason I kind of know all of those things is because then virtually if I'm attending something, there's larger attendance because you can get, like you said, larger geographic right. attendance. Right. But the relationship online is not as deep. So I, I'll find people who have similar experience than mine or, you know, something like that. And we can talk about teenage specific things or, you know, whatever it might be. Right. But I'm not able to develop like a true Got connection it. and friendship in person. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Do you see in a virtual group, do you see the same person more than once? Do they come and go? I guess yeah, often. Yeah, it depends. You know, it depends on the group. I have a couple of different virtual groups and there, there's oftentimes the same people. I often find also with virtual groups, and I'm sure we can all relate to this, a lot of people have their camera turned off and like, it's hard to make a connection and yes, work group with can. someone that you I can't agree. see their face. You know, like no, you don't want to get vulnerable and like, you know, yes. like oh, it's true. Yeah, true. Yeah. Well, we, re I mean, nonverbal communication. We read faces as far, as well as or as much as we listen. Yeah, you know? I think I've read before that nonverbal communication is eighty percent. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I have such empathy for teachers who did virtual school with all those kids' cameras turned ah, off, like just yeah, talking to a black screen for a year. Terrible. Yeah. Terrible. Absolutely. Well, Susan, I know we've talked about so much. One of the things that I like to do with my listeners is leave them with something that positive and actionable in terms of suggestions that they can take to be of service to themselves. What are your top three tips or actions that we can all take for us to better manage our health and decision-making capabilities? So I know you talked about this resources in your book. Maybe you want to share a little bit more about them or other tips that you found that have come up in your research as being really important. I do have a couple, actually. I'm glad you asked. This is quite specific. I think it's very important to focus and to think about when you visit the doctor, you want to be able to control the interview or the visit a little bit. I mean, obviously the doctor will also control it or focus it, but I think it's very important to go in with a list of your symptoms. And by list, I don't mean something in your head. I mean a written list. And I think that the list needs to be prioritized so that when you go there, you say what's on your mind. And if you're like me, you get so anxious that you can't, I can't, I forget what I came in for practically. So I always go in with a list and I've talked with many doctors 
And they said they really appreciate all this because it helped them focus the interview too. And they want to know what's really going on with the patient. So number one, go in with a list. Number two, ask the doctor for the clinical name of your disease so that you can go home and research it. And let's talk about research just for a quick minute. <laughs> Apparently, and this, is, this was a study, we take about eight hours to research a new car. Ten hours or so we do research for a new job. And just about zero hours for a surgery or this, uh, a particular surgery or the surgeon who's going to perform it. So I think that, you know, I think that your body, your surgery is far more important than your car. So I think that research is really important, and I think it's important to get the clinical name so you know what you're looking up. And then also, I think it's very important to reframe in your own words what you heard the doctor say. There's two reasons for that. One, it gives the doctor a chance to be sure that he or she said what they meant to say. You know, we all misspeak. And second, it gives you a chance to make sure that you heard correctly. And the doctor, it gives the doctor another opportunity to confirm or correct, if necessary, what you've heard. This is so important about saying it in your own words. Because I, the, just the other thing that blew me away, besides shame, there was one more thing. And that is that only 15% of women will tell the doctor when they don't understand something. So that means that 85% of us leave that doctor's office without fully understanding what we've been told. And so that's why I think it's so important to say some, to reach, to re-say it in your own words. And then it's also important to take somebody with you so that you have four ears that are listening and or taking notes or whatever, so that you're sure that, again, that you heard everything and understand everything you need to know. And the last thing, well, really, one of the doctors said, be sure to tell women not to come up with a new problem as we're leaving the room, because that way you really don't get our full attention. And I thought that was a good point. So those are about it. That's pretty specific. And I think that those are very important. And the last thing I want to leave everybody with is to remember it's your body or your mother's. In my case, that was my mother's story. But it's your body, and you really need to be in charge of it. You need to do your research. You need to clarify what you don't understand. You don't want to just go in for a treatment for something that you may or may not have, or maybe there's other options for your treatment. You want to know why your doctor arrived at the particular diagnosis they arrived at and what else it could possibly be so that you don't just feel that you've been blown off. You want to make sure that you have choices to look up if, and maybe there isn't anything else. It may, if it's a thyroid problem, something like that is self-evident. The doctor knew it wasn't, period, you know. So again, do your research, go in prepared, and remember it's the only body you have, the only one you're going to get. So take care of it. I love all of those. And I think the thing that came up for me when you were talking is also the idea that you are a customer. Like you are paying for a service. And I think oftentimes we forget this, right? Like we talked yeah. about how we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings or maybe we don't understand or we think we don't understand. And so therefore, you know, we don't want to be perceived a certain way. And I think it's important to remember we are hiring someone to do this service for us. And just like if someone were painting your house right, and you weren't sure about the color, 
or you didn't like the way that they were painting your house, or you'd never seen it done that way before and you wanted to understand why they were doing it differently, you would ask questions or you would make a change or you would get a second opinion or, you know, whatever it was. And I think it's easier for me when I started remembering, oh, I'm paying them. Like I'm the customer, right? If you have a doctor that treats you like they don't have the time of day for you, then it's not the right doctor for you because I get that the medical field is completely, it, it's messed up. I don't know how else to put it, right? Like the right. fact that doctors are in school for so long and then most of the work that they're doing when they come out is really not related to the education that they're getting. They're fighting with insurance companies. Right. They're exactly. you know, doing all of this kind of stuff and not able to do the thing that their passion brought them to that field to do, which is to help people. And the, I think the longer that they've been in it, probably the more frustrated that they get by mm-hmm. them. And mm-hmm. so I know a lot of our listeners seek care from doctors who don't take insurance or who are functional medicine doctors because we find oftentimes that those people have the time and attention that you might not be able to right. get elsewhere. Right. And so, you know, just a reminder for people, like the story that I told, I was going through a very like systematic process of doctors. Like I was going through, you know, our regular physician and they were giving me a referral to someone who worked in a hospital, right? Like these were not alternative medicine doctors, but I still was able to find someone with that second opinion who was willing to say, while I don't see a thyroid issue, I hear what you're saying about your symptoms being problematic. And I want to help figure out why that might be the case. So I think it's important to know that, you know, you're deserving of proper care. And if you're working with someone that isn't giving you a service that you like, there are alternatives. And that's harder when, you know, you don't have the income for it or you're in the military and you're, you know, restricted to who you can see. And there are ways around these things. So finding a support group or doing the research on, you know, alternatives and those kinds of things are so important. Also, be aware that doctors have like Yelp reviews. Like you can Google a doctor. (laughs) Their reviews will come up. Before I see a doctor, I 100% am Googling what like as much as I can find out about them because I want to go in educated and, you know, it helps me be a better patient if I understand where they're coming from and have proper expectations. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And sometimes what I also do is look to see what papers they've written. What's their specialty? That's always interesting, too. Absolutely. Yes, it's all available. I'm fascinated to hear about how few people research that stuff. And for sure, it wasn't something I was doing before the last couple of years, but everything is on the Internet now. And so it's fabulous. It's so easy. If you're even if you're in the waiting room for a doctor. Go ahead and Google, you know, like yeah, I'm, I've done it with my dad test. I've done it with you know, all these people. And, you know, you're also able to find my hair. I did it for a hairstylist, right? I was able to find the top 2022 local hairstylist place. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to check them out. These yeah, people, yeah. you know, sure. their clients love them. So it's about all the services that you're getting, you know, make sure that you're yeah. happy with them. And right. healthcare is just one aspect of that. So. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
Well, Susan, thank you so much for joining us today. Listeners, we'll be sharing what we really thought over on patreon.com slash the whole view, which is the best place to ask questions too. If you love the show that we create and produce ourselves, a patron is a great way to support the show, but so is leaving a review in whatever app you're listening. Hit the follow and subscribe button as well so that others can find us. We've put a list of resources into the show notes for you at realeverything.com. Thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate your willingness to be open to growth through your own personal changes. No one is perfect, but in listening, learning, and unlearning, we can become better versions of ourselves. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.